Hi, and welcome back to another episode of the Black Dog Cast. It's been a few months since I've published an episode. A lot's happened in that time. We've moved to Austin, Texas from Southern Oregon, which has been a big change. I managed to sell business that I bought a few years ago. At some point, I'll, I'll do an episode about some of these life changes and the, the impact that they've had because it hasn't all been very easy. But for now, this episode is one that I recorded a couple of months ago. It was sort of put on hold whilst the move happened and you know all that sort of stuff. So I'm pleased to be able to finally get it out. So in this episode, I'm talking to a good friend of mine from um, kind of from the world of cycling. We met on a Rafa Prestige ride in Portland a few years ago. And so Kyle Duford is executive, successful agency uh, leader. And what I think is really interesting about this chat is not only what Kyle shares about his battles with, um, you know, depression and some pretty big life changes a few years ago. What's most interesting is how he's overcome that and his path since then. And this includes a couple of major themes. So one of them is, you know, he reunited with the, the sort of the love of his life from his college days. And then second of all, we talk a lot about how religion plays a role in Kyle's life and how kind of refinding religion helped him you know, with this overcoming his problems and, and getting back on track. So for me, it was fascinating because I'm somebody that is not religious. I probably describe myself as a sort of spiritual atheist. I'm, I'll be honest, a lot of the time I'm turned off by, you know, organized religion and Christianity in particular. So it was fascinating to dive into this with Kyle and really talk about the, the role that religions played in his life over the few, the last few years. So have a listen, dig in. It's, it's a fascinating conversation. Kyle's actually written a book about his experiences over the last few years, which is available on Amazon now. So I'll put a link in the show notes and um, stay tuned for more episodes. So um, let's um, talk to Kyle. All right, Kyle, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> thanks, Alex. Thanks for, uh, thanks for making me do this. No, it's, it's a pleasure. You, see, you seem to be quite comfortable in, in, in kind of talking about your story and being open about it, which I guess goes with the territory of having a book out right now, which we can, we can talk about in a minute. I guess just to sort of frame it, you and I were sort of, We've been, we've been sort of friends, professional um, contacts for a few years. I think we met on one of those Rafa Prestige rides in, in, yep. in Portland. And then this was, this was what, probably... That was 2016, I think, right? 14, so, maybe? 14, 14, 15? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I remember, you know, we hung out a bunch at the time and, you, were, you know, it was clear you were going through some, some big changes in your life. Um, I guess just reading... I haven't read the book. I've read the sort of you know, the, the, the intro to the book. Um, I didn't realize at the time kind of the extent to what you were going through. So I think that's, you know, let's start there with sort of, um, you know, explaining a little bit about what happened back then. And, and, um, you know, I guess let's talk about the, the, the depths before you go into kind of, you know, your story coming out of it. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a, it's it's a it's a lot, I guess. You know, you said you didn't realize I was going through that back then, and I don't know if I realized I was going through that back then. I I knew I was hurting, and I knew I wasn't. I knew I wasn't right somehow, but I I didn't know enough to know what I was that I was probably clinically depressed had I gone and got diagnosed. Yeah, and I had made a series of mistakes in my life. Um, and it's hard to say if, if I did because I was depressed or um, I got depressed because I did those things. But mm-hmm. um, I had chased a lot of things in my life. Think, and it's, I'm not sure if this actually comes out in the book. Uh, it's probably implied. But I grew up without a dad. Uh, my mom worked three jobs to put my older brother and sister through school. And so I was, I was a latchkey kid. I was a classic American latchkey kid in the 80s. And so mm-hmm. I, from the time I was six years old, I came home with a key tied to my shoelaces and I was by myself uh, most of the time until dinner time. But a lot of the times when my mom was working that third shift, um, well into the evening, sometimes one, two o'clock in the morning. So I had to put myself to bed. I had to make my own dinner. It was like a microwave dinner. You know, microwaves had just come out in the 80s. And so I was just this traditional, like, uh, uh, yeah, glatchkey kid. And a lot of 
damage was done to my psyche then. A lot of fear was instilled in me, a lot of worth and value that I didn't even know I carried with me, this sense of, you know, um, I had a lot of attachment issues, I had a lot of abandonment issues, um, and I didn't understand that. And so a lot of it manifested in a lot of fear. And so a good portion of my life, I just chased things that I thought would fill that void. And uh, around the time I was uh, that we met and we're hanging out, I was probably at the top of my career uh, leading the whole digital and e-commerce division for Dr. Martin's. Um, mm-hmm. I was on the senior executive team uh, globally and it was the youngest one, the only American. And it was, you know, I had thought that I'd gotten where I was supposed to be. And yet yeah. I still had the same <clears throat> issues. I still had the same. This is this problems. is so common, right? It's, it's especially with you know with with men in their sort of forties of of we chase those things that people expect us to do, right? With the, and and career is one of them, and so people chase job titles and and salaries and all that sort of thing. And then I think you just get to a point and you re- you're like, what else? Like this is not this is not fulfilling me. And what what else is out right. there, right? Yeah, and that's exactly where I had found myself. Where you know, I thought flying first class every three weeks to my apartment in London was, you know, the, you know, I'd made it. And mm-hmm. to the outside world, to this, you know, perfect Instagram life, it appeared like I did. And, um, but I was, and it just took a lot of therapy to figure it out. But what I was doing was I was trying to put myself out there in hopes people would look at me and go, wow, look at him. And that was this false sense of belonging, this false sense of uh, admiration value, which was just all BS. But, um, mm-hmm. yeah, it was, you know, it was, it was weird because I remember coming back and I do talk about this in the book. I, I remember coming back one trip and I'd gone back and forth so many times within a very short span that I was, I got sick and I was also just mentally fried and I literally didn't know where I was. And, and I remember one of my, um, one of my team members came into my office and, you know, they finally got my attention and I said, yeah, what's up? She's like, I, I've been, I've been calling your name for like a good 20, 30 seconds and you just look like you're catatonic. And I'm like, no, you haven't. And she's like, yes, you were just standing here looking at the wall. And in my mind, I, I was just trying to figure out, was I asleep? Was I on a plane? You know, who am I? And that was, I just started to break down from there. And that just started a, just a series of events where I just started just breaking down further and further and further and realizing that all these things, as I was shedding them quickly, it was very painful. And, um, yeah, it culminated in a suicide attempt and um, and just really, really severe unhappiness and and a divorce from my wife, uh, yeah. uh, an affair with her friend. It was just, it was just a, I was living a life that I was not proud of and uh, was grasping at straws to try to stay afloat and yeah. nothing worked. So uh, I didn't know what else to do. So yeah, it was a tough <laughs> tough time period. Yeah. So then. Um- so, so, so what happened to sort of what, what was your sort of first step out of that, you know, that, that, that the depths of that where it got really bad? Well, the first step was, um, and I, and I have to give credit to, to this moment was, um, I, I had, like, there's a lot of people who suffer from suicidal thoughts and, and severe depression. And I really don't want to paint the picture that I was there. I was very, very close to there, but, um, I don't want to make light of a situation which many people deal with on a very, very serious note. Not to mm-hmm. not to think it wasn't serious for me. I, I mean, I I drove into my garage at the family home. I had already moved out, but I was driving home to to pick up some things, and I'm like, "This is I'm just I'm out. I'm done." And I drove into my uh, into the garage. I shut the door. My Jeep was still running, and we're talking probably like maybe eight to ten minutes um, in there, and yeah. just my life flashing before my eyes, like in the sense that I was just like thinking about all these things and what came into very crystal clear view was my children. And I have three, like now I have six, but I had three, um, an older daughter, two younger children. And and the only thing I could think of was how my soon to be ex-wife was going to explain how they just drove into the spot next to me and found daddy dead. Yeah. And I couldn't do that to my children. And, and that, in that moment, that instant moment, I was like, that's who I'm living for. I need to live for them. And I realized that, um, there, there's just, it's, it's not just my children. I mean, there, I live for them, but it's not just them. It's that I had, in that moment, I feel like, I feel like I had the opportunity to do something in the world 
that I didn't know what it was yet, but it wasn't those things I thought it was. Mm-hmm. And so it was this moment of kind of like, if it was like fuzzy clarity, if that makes sense. Like I had enough clarity to know I shouldn't be doing what I'm doing, but I didn't know why. And I didn't know what was next. So um, that was the start of it. And uh, like I said, I already moved out. I had a small little apartment. It was the place you had gotten an Airbnb in the same building. Yeah, right. Um, I think that was the actual last time I saw you. Um, and so I was, I was in that in that place. I had a bed on the floor, a TV, and a, and a bike on a trainer in the corner. And uh, I had a lot of time just to think. And I decided to go... I, then I got fired, which was uh, out of left field. And uh, I decided to go to Hawaii for just a couple of weeks just to ride my bike and clear my head and not be around people and just try to figure out what life was. And something on the plane, while I was on the plane, I could picture exactly where I was, where the seat was and what I was doing. And something clicked in my head. Um, now I believe it was a spirit of some sort, but um, I just decided whatever's out there. And I actually said, whatever's out there, whether it's Jesus or Muhammad or I don't universe or mother earth, Whatever yeah. it is, I don't care. I'm, I, whatever that thing is, I've I just made a promise that I'm I'm going to say yes to everything on this trip. I'm going to be open to experiences. I'm just going to see what I'm. Remember, I didn't know what I was going to do next, so I was like open to experiences. Mm-hmm. And that trip was. Um, it's why if you turn my book upside down, you actually see me riding my bike in Hawaii. It's this little double double picture on the front. Um, that trip just changed everything for me, and uh, that that was really the big turning point. Yeah. Was, was there, was there a particular thing on that trip that you did say yes to that maybe you wouldn't have done before that, the, 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 um, change this? If you've seen the Jim Carrey movie, yes, man, which I think was based on a real book at some point where, yeah, it was a uh, book by a British guy. I think I've read, I've read the book. It was a a British guy read the book who just, he basically said for a whole year, he was going to say yes to everything, wasn't it? Yeah. And that's really what I did. I mean, in in more of the in that bent than the Jim Carrey one, um, I literally got off the plane and the Uber driver's like, "Do you want to sit in the front seat?" And I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, let's do it." I mean, uh, I would have normally been like, "Nah, I'm just." I'm, it was just too proud and too prideful, and I didn't also didn't want to get hurt, which I think is they go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. And so I would just never open myself up to anybody. Uh, I, I because I was by myself, I would often I, I always just felt guilty my whole life, a, a, a person by themselves eating dinner at a table that could be used for, you know, that waitress could get more money, you know, if they, uh, if they had a, a full, um, a full table. So I'd always go sit at the bar and I did this on that trip quite often. I'd sit at the bar, read a book. I, I had a copy of Brene Brown's Daring Greatly with me and the chef, the bartender, whoever it was, was there, sushi, sushi chef at one point, they would say, uh, you know, are you a local? And I'm like, no, why? They're like, well, you're visiting? I said, yeah, you're here for work? No. Well, no one comes to Hawaii by themselves. Like, why are you here alone? And that was, it always came to that because it was very clear that no one just vacations alone out there. And I'd say, well, I'm going through this midlife thing and got divorced, uh, you know, pretty down, kind of depressed, just got fired. And every single one of them would be in some weird way would say, do you want to, okay, well, like you do anything tonight? You want to we have a dinner club every Tuesday night or, or somebody was like, uh, do you want to go? Ironically, somebody asked me and I tell some of these stories in the books. Uh, somebody asked me, do, do you want to just go for a bike ride? And I normally would have said, you know, guys like you and I, who think we're, you know, we're, we're hot stuff on a bike. I'm like, this guy's in his late fifties. I'm like, I don't want to go riding with him. You know, he's, it's going to slow me down. And I'm just very prideful. And I'm like, okay, let's go. And he just dusted the floor with me. I mean, he was amazing. Um, <laughs> But all those people at some point or another mentioned Jesus to me. And it, it was very strange because it just became a very, very common thing where I would almost expect it, it was almost comical. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a brand new Jeep. I ended up renting a Jeep later in the week so I could tour part of the island. And it was, I remember it had like 100 miles on it and the battery died at two o'clock in the morning. Well, I, that's the time I finally got a tow truck. It, it died when I was leaving dinner one night. And... I'm like, I was supposed to get up early and climb Haleakala on my bike the next morning. And I was like, I mean, this is crazy. And so I went, I found somebody uh, at this little candy shop around the corner where the where the Jeep was. And I said, hey, uh, are you guys local? Yeah. Do you have jumper cables? Yeah. Listen, Bo, can you help me out? And I'll never forget. It. She goes, yeah, I can help you out, but not right, <laughs> not right now. I'm going to go meet some friends around the corner. We all work in the neighborhood. We all get beers and play pool. And it turns out it was like a little 
like a group of friends from church or a Bible study or something. It was, it was that kind of thing where I just felt I was being chased. And part of my story back when I grew up was I became a Christian when I was 16 and I quickly left my faith for a number of reasons in, in college. And so I always felt a little chased, but this was like unnervingly so. And I don't know if people are listening, if they think I'm crazy or not, but um, I remember just really feeling like there was a God who was chasing me saying, hey, listen, I want to let you know that I can go anywhere you are. And no matter where you try to hide, no matter where you go, I'm there already. And that was, it was really profound for me. Yeah. And the very, very last thing that happened was I was, it was after two weeks, I'm packing up my bike, you know, I have to put it in the bike box and the whole deal. And I had some time to kill between that and getting the flight. And so I stopped at a little restaurant uh, in a, a northern, northern town on the North Shore called uh, Paia. Very, very cool little town. It's where you actually start the, the climb up to Haleakala if you're on your bike. I mean, I just had a margarita pizza and a beer and was just hanging out. And, um, and I, I heard this voice on the news, which I would identify in a heartbeat anywhere. And it was uh, the gal I was engaged to 21 years prior, mm-hmm. who happens to be Billy Graham's granddaughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were engaged um, in college and you know, in a pre-internet world, everything was just coming to fruition now. There was no texting. There was barely any email. I don't think there's any, no one had any devices to contact one another. She went home for the summer. We were supposed to get married that fall and I never saw her again. She, wow. she drove away and I thought I was going to see her in a couple of weeks and we'd get married in a couple of months. And I literally never, 21 years later, never became friends on social media. Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't even know where she was. She got married um, and then subsequently divorced. I got married and obviously divorced in this part of the story. And at that point I was like, okay, if there's, if I was God and I wanted to prove to Kyle that I existed, I would bring <laughs> this woman back into his life to show him. And that changed, I mean, it changed everything for me. Um, and now we're married. Uh, so, um, it was, it was a pretty, pretty crazy thing. Yeah. So let's, um, let's dig into this, this religion and God peace, right? So like, I'm, I'm, you know, I'll be honest with you. I'm, I'm agnostic. I believe in some sort of higher power, you know, spirit, whatever. I, I, I don't, I'm not involved in any sort of formal religion, that, that sort of thing at all. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm curious, you, you said you became a Christian when you were 16, right? Mm-hmm. And then yep. you, and then you left it behind when you, when you were in, when you were in college, did you grow up in a, in a family that was actively religious and what, what made you, no, um, um not pursue at all. that at such a young age yourself? Um, you know, my, my mom grew up in a very Catholic home. And so she had vowed that, uh, I have a brother and sister and myself, and she had vowed that we would not be raised with any religion. Because if you think about, you know, she was born in, I think, 1940. She went to college in 19, what would that be, 1958 or so, still thinking that if she sat on a toilet after the last person on it was a guy, she would get pregnant. Mm-hmm. And in 1958, I mean, so it's a, it's a, ba- a while back, but, you know, I was like, that's crazy. And she didn't want ever to happen to us. We never, she didn't want to shelter us at all. She let us do whatever we wanted. And, and that was, she's, she figured you guys will make your own mistakes and figure out life that way. Part of it was because she wasn't around a lot, but part of it was just like, that's, she just didn't want rules around us. Mm-hmm. And um, so no, we didn't grow up with religion at all. A Sunday was cleaning day in our house. We'd wake up and we all had a chore to do. We had to, you know, clean or vacuum or clean the kitchen or something. And so um, when I was 16, uh, and this is part of the book as well. When I was 16, um, I met a college guy who was actively involved with uh, Young Life, which is a high school youth ministry here in the U.S. And actually, I think it's I think they're international now. And I didn't know that. I, he just took interest in me and my best friend, Alan. And um, we we hung out all summer long. And this was a guy who loved us for who we were and made us feel cool and accepted and welcome. And it was just... It was refreshing to me growing up again without a father, not really knowing who to turn to. And this guy was like, hey, you don't have to be somebody you're not. And we became really, really close. And um, once he had earned the right with us to talk to us, one day I, I flipped out at him and I'm just like, who, who are you? Why do you Why do you want to know us? And he's like, yeah, you guys are cool. I'm like, that's BS. You know, tell me the truth. You know, what, what are you, a weirdo or something? Are you a pedophile? Like, what the hell? I was just really demanding answers from him kind of obnoxiously. And, uh, and he's like, no, it's because of Jesus. And I was like, whoa, I, I don't know what, <laughs> I don't know what that means. I just know that's some religious thing and that's not me. And 
So I don't want you to ever talk about the, at, at that again. And he's like, all right, well, can I still hang out with you? I'm like, as long as you don't bring up this Jesus dude. <laughs> and, uh, and we've remained friends for, for years and years and years. And um, a couple years later, uh, he's like, hey, do you want to go see what this thing is that I do and this Young Life Club? And I'm like, yeah, sure. And I told my buddy, let's go. And, and so we went out to a neighboring school, which had a really established what they call club, which is a one week, once a week uh, little meeting. And it was at, always at a kid's house. And we walked in and there was about 150 kids in high school just sitting in this room. And now I know that we purposely came in late because he wanted to make a scene. And that's who this guy was. He was very, he was uh, obnoxiously, um, in that in that sense that he wanted to bring, he wanted to bring attention to us. He knew what he was doing. He wanted to bring attention to us, so we felt like we were somebody. And so we walked into this room, and he's like, "We're." He pointed to the middle of the room. We're, we're going to sit right there, and we had to take our shoes off. And we walk in, we sit down, and in that moment, and I could see it like it was yesterday. In that moment, we're surrounded by these girls, and, he, and we're talking like I was not a popular kid in high school. Girls didn't talk to me. I wasn't part of a crowd. It was just you know, it was, it was a, it was just I wasn't cool. And more people, let alone women, talked to me at that in those next five minutes than ever in my life. And I was like, okay, like what's going on here? And they're just like, yeah, just welcome. And they accepted us for who we were. And I just remember that feeling was so palpable that when the leader got up at the end of, you know, singing some songs and stuff, he's like, hey, this is Young Life and we're going to Florida in December. And I looked at my buddy, Alan, I'm like, we're going to Florida. <laughs> it was like 400, 400 people. 60% of them are women. It was like, or, or, you know, girls back then. And it was just like, that's, I just wanted to be around that energy. Yeah. And when I heard, when I heard this, the message down there, when they were talking, um, you know, we'd have fun during the day and, and do a whole bunch of things. We went to Disneyland, all these, all these great things that you do at a young life camp. And, uh, the message just resonated with me. And it was, I remember the leader said something about like, we're talking about a story in the scriptures where Jesus meets, um, uh, Peter and his brother Andrew, and they're they're casting their nets to get to get fish. And he says, "Have you ever cast your net for sports and it comes out empty?" And I'm like, "Yeah, like that's me." Have you ever cast your net for girls and it comes up empty? I'm like, "Yes." And he's like, "How about grades or trying to get into school or driving the right car?" And and all those things were just such a poignant, you know, unfortunately, a reminder for me that I I really didn't have anything and I didn't see any value in myself. And he said, "Well." Jesus will fill your nets. And I went, I didn't know what that meant at the time. And I, I probably really didn't know what that meant until very recently, but I went, okay, I, I want that. I want, I want what that is. I want to feel that acceptance. And so I gave my life to Christ and, and I thought, you know, that was, that was all, but I, I was too young to understand. And I didn't have the support system around me to understand what, what it meant to be a believer, what it meant to live like he lived. Instead, I just took the immediate legalistic route, which was, oh, you have to read your Bible, you have to act this way, you have to listen to this kind of music, which was such a wrong thing to do. Yeah. Um, and that's really why when my faith broke apart, it was because I was hinging it on that stuff. And so, um, yeah, it was, it, so I lived 20 years of my life without God in my life, a purpose, yeah. but that was in between. It, it's interesting hearing you describe that experience when you were, when you were 16. And I think one of the things that religion provides a lot of people, if you, you know, take out the sort of the dogma kind of faith piece, it, the community aspect is super important, right? And I think what you just described is, is, is you know, you, you, you walked into a place where you were welcomed into a community and that's something that a lot of people don't have, right? And, and yeah. especially in modern life, people don't have. And whether it's, you know, um, organized religion that provides that or something else, it's definitely important and it's really lacking in, in, in a lot of people's lives right now, isn't it? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, there was a, there was a, a, a movie called, uh, the bridge years ago. It was a documentary and it came out. It was about people who uh, they filmed the, the golden gate bridge for one full year and literally documented filmed people who had jumped to their death from a distance. They had cameras set up 24 seven and, yeah, Everyone's I, I heard about. I've heard about this. I haven't actually actually watched it. I'll, I'll go back and find it. It's, it's it's really really hard. It's really yeah. difficult to watch because you're actually seeing people make the decision. But I think, and, and I'm probably misremembering this, but it was something like this where one of the, there's a couple of people who did survive and told their story, and one of them said something to the effect of, and I and I hope I'm not conflating with with something else, but the 
the gist is true. And that is, he said, I, I just wanted on the way to the bridge, knowing I was going to kill myself, I just prayed that one person would say something to me. Yeah. And if you, you know, if you, if you know the Golden Gate Bridge, the pathway on that side, the closest to the city, um, it's super deep. It allows uh, pedestrians and cyclists and there's people all over the world come there to see it all the time. It's always full, even on rainy, gloomy days. Yeah. And not one person he walked by said anything to him. And yeah. uh, it's like people could have changed that person's life. And I, I believe that person lived. But that's what I've realized is that, um, yeah, I, I think the world's going to hell in a handbasket, as my grandmother would say. And, you know, it's <laughs> everything's changing. Everything's everything's just, it feels like the world is on fire. And we have, I think we have a, a responsibility incumbent upon us, people who have it a little bit more together or have been through something, because I definitely don't have it together at all, but who have been through an experience that you almost called it an end or you didn't go to therapy or, yeah. or you didn't take the drug that would help you cope. I think it's, I think it's on our, our shoulders to help one another out, especially for men. Yeah, I, mean, yeah. I can't think of yeah. one guy who I know until I came forward among my peer group and said, this is who I am and what I struggle with. I, I mm -hmm. can't think of one person who willingly said, I struggle with this. X, Y, or Z, whatever it before is. You, I, before you come out and said something, you mean? Yeah. And, and yeah. look, I'm not taking credit for being the first one. I was just, maybe they said things to other people, but in my peer group, yeah, I, I can't remember one person who said that they struggle with something. And yeah, I've, when, I've, that, that's, my, that's, I've had exactly the same experience um, with, with, with my peers as well. It, but it's liberating. It's liberating because I, I feel there's, as men, there's so much put on us that we have to act and behave a certain way. Now, thankfully, in recent years, a lot of those stereotypes and those walls have been broken down, mm -hmm. uh, especially in the post-Me Too movement. I think people have been very introspective in realizing that you, you shouldn't act this way or you shouldn't be this way. Uh, but I think we've been, we've been kind of bred in our society to be to have it all together, to pretend we have it all together, to, to, to have the job, to take care of things. And yeah. we, we need help. I mean, I, I'm proud to say that my wife and I, we, you know, we always like, well, not always, but many times in text messages, you know, when we're walking through an issue together or, you know, she's going through a bad day or something, it'll be hashtag partners. Mm -hmm. And I, I, we, we mean that seriously. Like I, I see her as my equal. I, I think she's actually better than I am, but we're equals in our relationship. And that's not a very, it's not a very, um, um, what's the word I want? Uh, popular opinion, which is crazy to me, especially in Christian circles where people think that men were created to dominate women. And I just think that's BS. I think we were created to compliment women. I think they've been created to compliment us or whatever your sexuality is actually for that matter. I think your partner should be your person. And I didn't ever have that. And uh, because I was chasing the wrong thing, I didn't have somebody that I was invested in. My ex-wife said to me at the throes of our, the height of the bad part of the divorce, um, she looked at me and she's like, I don't even know who you are. Because I was telling her all these things that I've been dealing with and who I am now and who I'm trying to be. And she's like, I don't know this person. I'm like, I don't know who I am. <laughs> so it's like, it, I didn't have any real relationships. And now that I do, yeah, certain people think I'm being you know, maybe a little selfish and, you know, talking about my book and how I met my wife. And I'm sure there's people thinking like, I'm sure there's people from my past who've either heard that, heard about this or read it and are think, thinking that, you know, oh, that joker from, you know, the, the last 47 years, like he's full of shit. Um, but this really is who I am. And um, I, I find it's just a, it's a liberating way to liberating way to live. So yeah. if I can have those conversations with my friends now, and, and I try to, we have a staff of about 20 people here at the office and I try to be, you know, 60% of them are men or so. I try to be that way with our staff. My brother-in-law works for us and um, we try to build a place where this is safe, where if you're dealing with something, somebody here should be able to be the one you can confide in. If it's not me, it could be somebody else and create an environment. And we do this at our, at our home as well, create an environment where anyone is welcome. And there's no judgment, man. There's no judgment at all, because that's the that's the thing which prevents people from from being honest and open with themselves. So uh, yeah, yeah, it's uh, I don't know. We could talk about this forever, right? Yeah. Well, um, I mean, what happened? Give us the, the the brief. What happened next after you saw your your fiance from when you were in your twenties on TV, and you felt like 
this was a message that was coming from somewhere. Like, what what happened next? Well, I, I should be clear that I didn't I didn't receive the message like, oh, you will marry her. It was <laughs> it was more of a message of like, as much as I wish that was true, it was more of like, hey, like. I'm here, like, just know that I'm here. And so I wrote her right away and I, I found her on social media right away. She, uh, her name is Jerusha. And so it's not a very uh, popular name. And so I now, I, I don't think I ever knew her married last name. And, and, I, and I saw, I looked her up, I found her on Facebook right away, mm-hmm. um, which I'm not on anymore, by the way. But um, I Facebook messenger her and I just said, hey, I don't know if you remember me, but I just want to let you know that I just really appreciate that you're part of my life and, and you were you were very important to me. And I just, it was something like that. And, um, and what you did on TV was, uh, was remarkable for, I think I said like what you did was more impactful for, this is right in the, like the Donald Trump stormy Daniels days. And she, she stood up on behalf of women, minorities, immigrants, Christians, Americans. And, uh, she went toe to toe with the president of the United States. Yeah. I was, I was, I was going to ask about this. We can come, we can come to this in a minute when you finish this part of the story. Yeah. We'll, we'll come back to that. But yeah. And so I just wanted to let her know that I was proud that I knew her and um, she wrote back and, and uh, she's like, not remember you. What's wrong with you? Like we were going to get married. And I was like, well, I didn't want to be presumptuous. And um, it wasn't for another couple of weeks until we reconnected again and uh, over text. And, and uh, that's a different story. But we reconnected and we, that's when we started talking every day. Mm-hmm. And I was driving back, you know, the road, uh, Interstate 5. I'm coming up from like Ashland up to, um, uh, up to, up to Portland. And I'm driving that road and it starts pouring down rain. And I'm not talking like the, the drizzle that happens in Portland. I'm talking like pissing down rain. Yeah. And we were on the phone for a long time because I was, I was doing, going, I went down there for a reason and came back. We're on the phone all day long, just talking. We're getting to know each other. This is a couple of weeks into this new relationship, whatever it was. And I hung up the phone. It's like 8 p.m. or so. And the, the man, it was just gushing down water. Like someone was dumping buckets on my windshield. And so I had to slow down. Couldn't even see the road. And I look at my phone in the seat next to me and I'm just thinking, I can't do this again. Like I can't, it was so vulnerable now and I'm so open and I've told her all about my life, you know, the, the worst of the worst stuff I've done. And she loved me through it. And I'm like, I, I can't do, I can't lose her again. It will, it would tear me apart. Like I spent a long time in my life being with a tattoo on my leg that she never knew of that I got when, when we never saw each other, uh, after that, that was just this, uh, the Hebrew verse from the Old Testament just to remind me that God loved me, which I clearly didn't pay attention to for to the inner intermediary 20 years. And I'm like, I just started bawling and I started screaming at God. Now this is on the back of this trip to Hawaii and all these things. I just started screaming. I'm just like, what do what the F do you want from me? Like what seriously, what do you want from me? Like I'm tired of this. I'm tired of running. I'm tired of my life. This is probably like six to eight weeks after the garage incident or so. And I'll tell you, I've never heard the voice of God and I, I don't chastise those who, those who say they have, but I didn't. But I can tell you, it wasn't audible, but I felt words, if that makes any sense. And it just was just quiet as all get out. And I heard, again, not audibly, if that makes sense. It's very strange to say this, but I heard the words, just stop denying me and I got you. And uh, man, that just, I just said, okay. And just like immediately, I I just said, all right, I I'm yours. I I just couldn't fight that anymore. That and, and again, people might believe in this or not believe in this. For me, I've seen what God has done in my life, and I've seen the proof that He exists. And for me, that was, I said, okay. And I made a promise to Him at that moment that I would never deny Him again. So boldly now, I I uh, I claim. Uh, that I'm a Christ follower. I just, I, I see no other way to live my life with, with, without falling apart. Um, and um, shortly after that, uh, we met up, we fell in love and we got married. So now we blended our families. We have six wonderful children together and we pretty much picked off where we left off, you know, 20 some years ago. And, and you know, like I said, she's my partner. She's the love of my life, but I, like not in the sentimental sense, but literally like she, I've loved her my whole life. And mm-hmm. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't do it without her. So she's an amazing woman in, in her own right. Yeah. It's a, it's a beautiful story. Um, let just, so g- going back to that when she was on TV, cause I remember seeing this, um, yeah. in the press at the time, um, yep. she was, so she's Billy Graham's granddaughter. She was speaking out yep. against, um, uh, Donald Trump 
and against was it her her family had had, had endorsed him and yeah. she was sort of um, calling them out and it, it created uh, you yeah. can explain it in a bit bit more detail. Well, I mean, the the gist of it is if you if you close your eyes and you think of what a evangelical Christian is in today's world, you can probably picture her uncle Franklin, um, who is um, her mother's brother, and who's pretty much taken up the mantle of the Billy Graham Evangelical Association, and he has a way of portraying the very the very conservative view of. You know, you're going to hell if you're gay. You're doing this if you're that. You have to vote Republican. Things that I just don't think are true that we don't think are true. And yeah. there's no love there. There's no compassion there. There's no grace. There's no. I I've read the scriptures. I, I'm not. Uh, I, I'm not an authority on them by any means. But I I, I love the, the red letter versions, which uses Jesus's words in red. So you can, for dummies like me, you can actually see what he said. And I can't see anything in there that is exclusionary at all. Yeah. And it's not my place. Her grandfather used to say, I'll probably mess this up, but something like, um, it's God's job to judge. It's the spirit's job to convict, but it's my job to love. And the best I can tell is that that's what we're meant to do. So whether it's right or wrong to do this or that, that's not my place. I don't even know what the answer is. I just yeah. know that some of my best friends are gay. Uh, uh, we have an African-American adopted daughter. We, we open our table to whoever wants to be a part of it. You believe what we believe, great. If you don't believe what we believe, that's fine too. Like there's, I believe our job is just to love folks. And so he, I think he would claim that, but he's very, very, it, it seems like he signed a deal with the devil in the sense that to get the votes, to get the 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 beneficiaries, to get the money in, to make sure that the the association continues to go, it's perpetuated this idea that, that Donald Trump was some sort of like godlike figure. And yeah. she just stood up and said, uh, if that's what an evangelical is, then I want no part of it. And she basically, you know, came out pretty hard swinging saying, I, I don't believe what my uncle says. And her family, her, her immediate, her brothers and sisters are very much the same way. Um, and that's how I, that's what I believe as well. So, um, it doesn't matter what you vote, like vote on fiscal policies or vote on social policies, but don't vote because you think this guy was, ordained by God because, you know, I mean, I can't see anything that points to this guy being a godly figure. And so that's really what she was saying. And, um, and she took a bold stance, you know, yeah. she took a really bold stance and I'm, I'm really proud of her, but she doesn't know how to not do the right thing. She sees somebody that's hurting and she, she fights for justice any moment she can. And it's maddening sometimes because sometimes you just want to hang out in the sofa and, and relax. But uh, I love that about her, that she's just she will fight for people who can't fight for themselves. She fights for the marginalized community. Yeah. Uh, you know, we just, just before we came on the air, you, you mentioned you want to go into practicing um, psychotherapy. And she, she came to me one day shortly, I think it was before we got married. And she said, uh, I think I want to, I want to do this. Like my counselor did for me. I want to do this for other people. And that 40 years old, she went back to school and got her master's. And now she's a practicing therapist. And that, cause she just couldn't stand by the sidelines and see people get hurt. Uh, the way we both have in our life. And so, yeah, she's a remarkable woman. Yeah, good good for her. I, I mean, Gretchen and I have talked about it quite a lot and, and uh, you know, the, the sort of um, the way that uh, the conservative right has sort of hijacked the the Christian message in this country, right? And and a lot of it is seems to us as, as, you know, we're not practicing Christians. It just seems inherently unchristian. They're not pre uh, preaching sort of, you know, love and forgiveness and, and community and, and all of those, what you think about with like traditional Christian values, it just seems, you know, mean right. and exclusionary and prejudice and, and all of these not very nice things. And, and it's mm -hmm. sort of, it's given Christianity a bit of a, uh, an image problem, I think. Right. Oh yeah. I mean, many, I think there's a guy, uh, well, I know there's a guy named Andy, Andy Stanley is a famous uh, pastor in Atlanta. I think he did a series called, uh, um, that the church has a branding problem or Christianity has a branding problem. Yeah. And I agree with that. I think, I think there's, but again, we can't look, we can't look to people who are human, who will serve their own needs any chance they can as the way that we were told and instructed to live our lives. And it's sad to me. And I, I said this before, 
in public and on other podcasts. It's sad to me that the one place we're told is where you can find God is the one place I think today, if Jesus came back, he would not be invited into because he was different, because he was radical, because he was probably wearing bare feet, wearing bare feet. You know what I mean? And, you know, he was dirty and he was, and hey, probably maybe, not white. Maybe, you know? Yeah, I was just going to say that. Maybe he had brown skin, right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think that's cool. Like, I mean, yeah. I don't care what he looked like. I mean, he came down to earth in a, where he was. I mean, to think that he looked like, you know, Santa Claus is, is, is absurd to me. But regardless, I think he wouldn't, I think he would be looked at in the parking lot of a modern evangelical church today and be rejected based on his looks alone. And that is systemic in today's society, not just in Christian circles, especially in Christian circles. And I just think that's a shame. And there's, listen, there's some really, really, really great people uh, in the world who, who do not think the way of her uncle, but think more like uh, other pastors and other people who are accepting and generous and kind and full of grace. Her, another brother of hers is, um, is a pastor in, in South Florida, went through a really terrible time on his own and, and a divorce and um, a big fall from grace. And uh, he's he's rebuilt himself in a way that he's like, it's not about how many people come to the, he's like, a, he had a mega church before. Now he's got a very small uh, church and he, he loves his people. And he says something that I love. He's like, God can't remember the sins that we can't seem to forget. Um, and I love that. But we look at other people as if they're wearing whatever we think their sins are on top of them. And one, they might not be sins at all, but two, it's not our place to even think about that. It's our place to love who they are. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's it's a tough thing. There, there's some really great people in the world who, who love the Lord um, and, and they can be found, but I think a lot of them are hiding out because they don't want to be lumped into this mass movement of Trumpism slash yeah. evangelicalism because they're not the same thing. Yeah. 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 Um, well, look, I just, let, let's move off religion briefly. Um, I want to talk sure. about some of the other things that, that formed part of your, your sort of, let's call it your recovery out of, um, uh, mm-hmm. your depression and, and, and everything else. You talked about therapy. Um, mm-hmm. what sort of therapy did you have? What was your experience with it? Did you, you know, did you go down the route of, um, antidepressants, that sort of thing. And, and was there anything else that formed part of, of um, you know, overcoming um, the, the things that you were going yeah, through? Yeah, I, I think there was a stigma associated with all of those things you just mentioned for me for a long time. That, um, yeah. again, it's the things that we were told growing up as men, you, you, it was weak if you went to therapy, it was weak if you took drugs. And, mm-hmm. and it's lucky you couldn't, you couldn't be far from the truth. So if anyone is listening uh, who oh, thinks that the, way- Take the or, drugs. <laughs> Yeah, take the drugs. Um, I've been on. Um, I can't remember. You know, one one does one thing, one does the other. I forget which one it is. But um, all I know is that I've been on at the. Uh, I was going to say urging of my wife. That's not true. At the joint decision to come to, uh, she was medicated at one point. She's like, "This is the best thing she ever did to deal with yeah. some anxiety I, after her father I, passed." Again, I had exactly the same experience. It was at the urging of, of Gretchen. You know, when my depression got to its worst, she's sort of like, "Look." This isn't getting any better. I think you need to go see somebody, and I think you need to explore taking, you know, taking some sort of drug here. Right. I mean, that's that's um, not unlike what happened to me. I thought it was going to change me, and I and I just when I when I told the, I think it was a psychiatrist I saw off the drugs, but when I when I told him, I'm like I, I just had this epiphany of life. I, I'm finally happy with who I am. Like I don't want to lose that guy, and and he's like. Well, let's get you on a drug, which doesn't make you feel different. I'm like, I don't, you know, we're big, you and I are big uh, exercise enthusiasts and ride our bikes a lot. My wife is the same. I'm like, I don't want one that like, I heard the rumors that guys take antidepressants and they get fat or they yeah. lose their sex drive. And for the first time in my life, I was with someone that I wanted to be intimate with. And I didn't want to lose any of that. I felt like I finally knew my identity. I wouldn't be masked. And, and he's like, let's just try this and see what happens. And it's just, he's like, this will just take the edge off. And, um, Gosh, now three and a half years or so, I've been on mo well, almost four years. I've been on uh, on this drug, and it just I can tell midday if I did if I forgot it in the morning by accident. I can just tell there's just a I start to get a little bit anxious and yeah. worried and sad, and it's just like it's just crazy. So, um, so that's a big thing for me. And and therapy was it started off therapy started off as as um I don't I don't recall ever going to marriage counseling, but we went to like a a, a 
a family therapist that helped us figure out how to tell the kids we're getting divorced and mm-hmm. kind of, you know, ha- how to deal with each other through that kindly. And um, what we ended up doing with it, the woman had asked me that that particular therapist, I think only saw a handful of times, she asked me who I was going to, if I was going to anyone personally. And I told her, and she's like, I really think from the little I know about you, you should, you should see a man. Mm-hmm. Uh, now remember, this is just at, I'm doing this while I'm talking to Jerusha in the early days. And so I'm like, I'm going through all this kind of like, you know, the, the Jeep and the rain time. This was all like, yeah. I'm figuring out who I want to be. And, and she's like, I, I just, a guy who is in touch with his feelings should be with a therapist who encourages that. And yep. I said, okay. So she, she referred me to this one guy and I owe a lot to him and he just helped me walk through a lot, but it wasn't like, how are you feeling today? It was like, where do you think this came from? And we talked a lot about attachment disorder and how my mother was present or not present growing up, how my dad was present or not present growing up, how that has turned into one failed relationship after another because of what I expected from that and how I tried to fill this void. Um, we talked a lot about um, my older daughter and having her very, very young in my relationship with her and how I had a lot of personal um, shame in how when... I, when I left her mother that we just, um, how I handled that situation, who I was for her. So that was just a lot of shame there. And it, it was just a lot of just walking me through the story and seeing that like, I'm okay. And yeah. I, I may have done some things that I'm not proud of, but okay, let's fix them and let's move on. And, and I have a you know great relationship with my older daughter now. And um, we've, it, it's all those things. I, my dad passed a long time ago, but I wrote a letter to my father just uh, saying, um, seeing how I felt about him and, and, and that I forgave him for, for who he was. And uh, ironically, or serendipitously, um, I reconnected with his sister, um, who's quite old now, but, um, and I, and I talked with her shortly after this and she had told me, um, and I, I write this in the epilogue of the book, but she had told me that when my father was dying, it was like a day, day or two before he passed, he looked at her and said, um, do you think Kyle knows how proud of him I am? And uh, I had never heard that before. And that was just, it floored me. And his wife at the time, when he, when he died, he was married to the, a woman named Maggie. And she said the only thing in his desk drawer when he died was a picture, a, a picture of my eldest daughter and the letter I wrote him in 1997 telling him I was getting married to Jerusha. And I mean, that just, I mean, that's it right there, you know? Yeah. So, um, but I had I not gone to therapy and worked through those things, and and if if I had the, you know, a, that kind of disposable income again, I would probably continue to just go through and just talk about life and how I feel, and you know, I I can tell when I slip into I, I'm deathly afraid of slipping into the guy I was when right before my life turned upside down. It, it, it's it was such a protective person and I just I wore a mask through everything and I was just definitely afraid of that. So days that I even fear that I'm veering that way, mm-hmm. that I get threatened somehow or somebody says I, I'm doing a bad job or, or I know I did something wrong or I could have done something better and I feel everyone else looking at me like they're judging me even though they're probably not. And immediately I want to go into that persona that is, you know, F you, I can do anything, I'm better than you um, and just kind of shed the fear. Um, and you're not really shedding the fear at all. You're just covering it to yourself. And it, I, I'm super frightened of that. And so when I get that way, I, I really have to check myself. And I'm very thankful for the men I have in my life now, my brother-in-law being one of the closest people in my life and some of the people I work with and the CEO of the company and then some of my friends in town and definitely, definitely my wife uh, who I can go to and say, this is how I felt today. And be okay with somebody saying, yeah, you screwed up. Don't do that again. Or yeah, yeah, that was pretty mean. My yeah. kids do that to me. My my stepkids, um, we have that relationship where they can actually tell me when I hurt them somehow, and uh, yeah. when my words are biting, and I just go, "Gosh, I'm." And I I've learned how to apologize. I've learned how to say I'm sorry and mean it. And uh, it's just been it's been good. So the, all that drugs therapy, really good men in my life, my wife obviously, and and I believe a relationship with the Lord that has really just helped me get on the better path. I, like I said, I'm not there yet. And I try so hard, but um, it, 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 I'm, yeah, it's yeah. Uh, where I am today. What, what would you, I mean, we're almost out of time, but what would you, um, what would you say to your younger self? What would you say to that guy in his, you know, in his thirties, who was, um, you know, going, 
going down a different path? What, what sort of advice would you give him? Oh, I mean, that's a great question. <laughs> um, give him a slap around the face. <laughs> yeah, oh, well, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> do that. Like, I'd leave him bloody on the floor so he couldn't hurt anyone. Uh, but, um, yeah, I would probably just say, I, I would probably just say, hey, man, just learn how to be kind. Just learn how to be kind. I, I think that's, um, had I not had people be kind to me, I wouldn't have known what that felt like. And I'm not just talking about my wife, and I'm not just talking about those people who are around at those moments, but seeing people's grace and graciousness, um, even though I didn't deserve it, those are the people that I remember, and those are the people that changed my life. Uh, and, and, and that, in many ways, is what the book is about, because it's, if you read any one chapter, it's about a person who I look back and realize that they were put in my life because they taught me humility or they taught me grace or they taught me acceptance or they taught me trust or honesty or whatever. And if you read the whole thing, it's a story about my life and, and coming back to God and coming back to my wife. But each chapter is about these people that I will never forget because they loved me for whatever reason at the time and they were kind to me and they wanted the best for me. And so I would tell that guy, hey, just be kind, learn, learn how to be kind. And, uh, I, I think I probably would have avoided a lot of hurt in my life and other people. <laughs> Wise words. But also, if you hadn't gone through all of that pain and suffering, you wouldn't be where you are today, would you? No, and I wouldn't change where I am today for the world uh, at all. Yeah. I, I, for the first time in my life, I'm actually comfortable in my own skin. And, uh, and that feels great. Yeah. No, I, I, I know exactly what you mean. Um, well, listen, give, give us, give us um, a shout out for your book. What's it called? Where can people find it? Um, yeah, uh, thanks. Um, I've never promoted it before. It's, uh, it's called Twice Found. Subtitle, excuse me, the subtitle is Getting a Second Chance at Life, Love, and Understanding God. Um, but it's called Twice Found. You can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, in both print and like Kindle or Nook format. You can find it on Apple iBooks. Um, yeah, you can, uh, you can find it a bunch of different places. So just Google me or Google twice found book and you'll, you'll definitely find it. I appreciate that. I mean, if one person reads it and knows that they're, they're valued and that they're good enough, then I'll be happy. And I, I hopefully that happened already, but you know, if anyone's listening who wants the story there, you know, there's definitely some Jesus talk in there, but in a way that I appropriated myself to, to God and what I saw. Um, so I don't think it's any off putting to people who aren't, um, of that ilk. Yeah. Cool. Well, look, this, it, it, you've got a great story and it's fascinating to like reconnect after a few years and kind of hear in detail, you know, your, your, your path and, and what you've been through and that most importantly, you've come out of it the other side and you're, and you're thriving and doing great. So I appreciate you taking the time to, to tell us all about it. Of course. And, uh, if anyone's listening and wants to just talk to me for whatever reason or yell at me or whatever, uh, I mean, I would encourage you to just find me. You can find me anywhere. Just Google my name. Um, I'm definitely up for talking to anyone who feels lonely or sad or it, it feels like there's no hope. I'd, I'd absolutely love that the opportunity yeah. to chat with you. Awesome. Good stuff. Well, thanks, Carl. All right, man. Thank you.